and I would like to speak a little bit this morning about worldly and unworldly feelings which was brought up yesterday in the Q&A and uh, you know usually we look at the feeling tones in terms of pleasant, unpleasant or painful and neutral and with the worldly and unworldly feeling tones the Buddha introduces a second way of recognizing the quality of feeling tones in terms of their ethical dimension and uh, so in short that means you know worldly feelings would be feelings which are connected with greed, ill will and delusion and unworldly feelings would be feelings which are free at least temporarily from greed, hatred and delusion and so it speaks about what repercussion a particular feeling has onto the mind that's the worldly or unworldly quality and it doesn't say you know that pleasant feeling uh, is good and unpleasant feeling or painful feeling is bad this is like an automatic response we tend to have in the mind in the untrained mind and you know in this way of looking at the feeling tones helps us to to step out of this automatic reaction to feelings but uh, you know rising above that and seeing you know that they are actually all impermanent because that's the most important insight we can have in regards to feeling their impermanence and those other two ways of looking at feelings is just a way to help us to stay conscious pleasant unpleasant neutral or worldly and unworldly so this is two ways of looking at feeling tones to help us to not get completely sucked up into it because they have a very powerful impact on us and if we see that in the context of earlier stages of evolution of the human species you know we might appreciate a Neanderthal going through the forest and coming around the bend and seeing an animal and very quickly he or she has to make a decision about fighting or fleeing and, and that f the feeling tone is there you know, to make a very quick appraisal of a situation which is bypassing completely the thinking mind it's a complete uh, you know, reaction and in today's living situations and you know, living in big cities and so on this would be an overreaction of course so we have to learn you know, to deal with this evolutionary baggage which we have and to learn from it and integrate it and, and develop enough mindfulness and clear comprehension so that we can actually you know, become mindful of what feeling tone is present and stop and then you know, make an informed decision do I need to do something about this for example you know, going uh, to the stove and putting your hand onto the hot plate would be the right thing to not do that, you know, pull back but for example, you know, to be in a in a full train in the morning when you go to work and somebody presses against you because somebody presses against that person, to then kind of fight that person would not be a good would be an overreaction. So helping us, you know, to have more 
mindfulness, to have more spaciousness and to make a decision about how to respond rather than to react to feeling tones. And uh, so the untrained mind tends to pursue pleasant feeling and tends to turn away from unpleasant feeling and you know, try to suppress, try to distract all of those different uh, methods which you can most likely observe in yourself. You know, even a very simple situation like sitting down for meditation and then you know, the mind wanders off into thinking about lunch, for example. That simply means, you know, the mind is averse to the present experience and craves a different experience. That's the basic pattern, you know, which we can observe in very innocent situations like, you know, wanting to eat something, wanting to drink something. And that can become, you know, if we don't uh, look at it with clarity, it can become an addictive um, habitual pattern. You know, being addicted to all kinds of things. Some, some are really dangerous and others are less dangerous, but there's like a whole spectrum and the uh, basic uh, pro process is the same, you know. Feeling that I need to respond to this pressure, I need to do this, rather than just stopping and, and being in the pressure, allowing that fire, you know, to purify the intensity. That, but that can only happen through, you know, experiencing the pressure with mindfulness and clear comprehension. And, uh, you know, we can uh, put that almost in a mathematical equation saying, for example, the Brahma Viharas are craving raised to the power of clear understanding. So if we are able you know, to sit inside of the power of that fire of craving with full mindfulness, then the craving gets purified and it becomes more and more expansive. It's more and more dislodged you know, from the object and it becomes more and more all-encompassing. And then, you know, a very strong... Uh, for example, a very strong desire for any kind of a beloved object, may it be a person, may it be a car, may it be a diamond ring or whatever it is, you know, that craving can be purified into a more and more an expansive way of uh, embracing whatever is happening. And that's, you know, what we are doing in the practice, really. So the Brahma Viharas, they're actually an alchemical uh, result, you know, of a process we, we are going through. And then through understanding our own internal turmoil, our own internal chaos, and through being with it, a natural compassion and metta and mutita and all of those good qualities, they are the result of it. The metta is, is the basic quality of you know, opening the heart and karuna would be you know, turning this openness towards the suffering of another and mudita would be you know, turning that openness towards the flourishing of another. 
And equanimity is, you know, turning that openness towards the ups and downs of life. But it all starts with, you know, creating that openness through being cooked inside of the contraction. And, you know, the tantric traditions, they are using that uh, intentionally, are using intentionally a beloved object which brings up a lot of craving, using that intentionally, intentionally for that process of burning. And it can be a knock if one doesn't have a good teacher, if one doesn't have good discipline, that can be a very dangerous path because it, it throws up very, very deep, deep stuff, which, you know, can be very convincing sometimes that one has to do this and that one needs to do this. And to really have a very clear understanding what's the difference between wanting and needing. You know, if we are suppressing a real need, it, it brings us, you know, to... Um, an impoverished life and to depression and maybe even illness. But if we are just uh, able to stay conscious with a want, it can bring a lot of wisdom and compassion and a lot of spaciousness into the mind. But it can only happen if we have that capacity to, to um, embrace the unpleasant feelings you know and the Buddha spoke about there is pleasant feelings which are supportive for awakening and there is pleasant feelings which are unsupportive for awakening and the same with the with the painful feelings so for example you know to have in the pleasant feeling of deep meditation deep concentration jhana is conducive to liberation it's not it's not uh, the opposite. So it's conducive to liberation in, in the sense that it does refine the mind and the mind loses more and more interest in regards you know, to sensual desires because it's, it's elevated, so to say, you know, or refined to a level which is not interested anymore in lots of stuff. And then... Uh, certain kinds of painful feelings, you know, the painful feeling of maybe reflecting on one's own conduct, you know, that one has a regret, for example, or have a certain yearning, you know, for liberation that is supportive for, for the process of uh, transformation. It, it does create energy. It does create, you know, determination and it does create perseverance. So, you know, pleasant and unpleasant needs to be seen in that context of what repercussion does it have onto the mind? Does it lead to liberation or does it lead to bondage in terms of, you know, addiction and needing more and more and more stuff? Or is that the opposite? 
and it can you know it can look very different on the surface than what it is happening inside of a particular person's heart so you know that new capacity which you know springs forth from going through very narrow gateways you know where lots of inner chaos inner turmoil is is thrown up but because we are seeing it leads us in the right direction we we have that strength you know to, to be with it and allow that process to take care of itself you know freeing up more and more spaciousness and the brahma viharas all four of them you know they are expanded mind states and you know as we have been guiding you up to now you know they are starting with some kind of a object which we are choosing and that object you know kicks up initially that feeling tone and then you know to stay with it and you know familiarize ourselves with it with the in-breath and letting it expand out into spaciousness with the out breath it's almost you know like if you're blowing up a balloon so to say you know in a very gentle way and then if the mind you know is expanded to a certain degree we can drop the object and then the expansion just stays there not dependent on anything so that would be an, a temporary liberation of the mind. You know, we used like a beloved object, like a little baby, a little puppy, a kitten or something, to, to ignite the flame. And then once the flame has been stabilized and, and the energy is radiating out, we can drop that flame. We can drop that image and just be in the expansion, be being the expansion. So the, the beloved object is used you know, to, to show the way. And then once it has shown us the way, the beloved object gets put down, you know, in an in a kind way. It's no longer needed. It just helped it was a skillful means to get us to that expansion of the mind. And then from that expansion, we can look at our experience and we see things in context. We see the conditionality and the interdependence and we see the impermanence, unsatisfactoriness of all conditioned states. Even the most sublime temporary liberation of the mind is impermanent. So, you know, this kind of, of um, practicing, you know, can't come from fear of pleasant feeling. It needs to come, you know, from a wisdom of being with pleasant feeling in the right manner, of not getting lost in it, neither unpleasant nor unpleasant nor neutral feeling but staying conscious staying mindful and for example you know the uh, english word apathy 
you know, comes from the Greek word patean, which means to suffer. And apathy is a refusal to suffer or a fear of suffering. And that leads us, you know, leads us to um, depression. Or leads us in a loss of energy. Apathy means, you know, pff, you know, can't do anything. It's just like in a heap on the floor. Because there is not that capacity of being with the turmoil, being with the chaos. There's that, you know, aversion to it. And then contracting ever more into oneself and then just, you know, becoming a, a stone. Because stones, I don't think stones do feel, but they might, but I, at least they look like they don't. But that, you know, cannot be a state of being which is capable of transformation. The only way a stone can be transformed, it's broken down, you know, broken down, broken down, broken down until it's sand. So this refusal to suffer, you know, blocks the pro progress. So it's important, you know, to find ways which encourage us, which inspire us, so we have the spaciousness, you know, to embrace it. And there's, you know, in the, the tradition has lots of skillful means for that, starting with the five precepts, you know, as a protection. And many other ways, you know, how we can uh, inspire a sense of confidence so that we have enough uh, fearlessness and courage, you know, courage comes from the word cur, French word cur, which means heart, you know, having enough heart, taking it on, you know, opening to the experience out of love for our own freedom and wanting, you know, to offer that for the benefit of all sentient beings. So this, you know, this paradox, which is like a freedom, which is the result of, of um, bowing down to a discipline. You know, whatever is needed for us to, to stay afloat. You know, we have chosen a rather intense kind of a discipline because we need a lot of support. And a retreat can be, you know, a temporary set of disciplines which you are taking on in order to have an empty stretch, you know, where you can focus completely onto the practice. You know, and through seeing more and more the connection between, uh, you know, how we are pushed around by feelings. The, you know, the wish, you know, to be free from that enslavement becomes stronger and stronger. And that would be, you know, an unworldly, painful feeling which gives us energy to do something about our lives so that our lives are more in sync with the Dhamma. <laughs> 